Um, we are, I'm super excited today because I have the easy, easy task of telling you all why faith matters. Um, and we are going to finish up the Reason series. A lot of you guys are, have enjoyed this series. I know Rob, uh, Pastor Rob and I have uh, enjoyed doing this series with you guys. A um, little bit more of an apologetics focus, so it's definitely been like drinking from a fire hose sometimes, maybe even a fire hydrant at times, not just the hose. Um, so we have been providing our notes online, uh, if you guys have been taking advantage of that. So what I like to say and what Pastor Rob likes to say is we're giving you the, the 50,000 foot view. Our notes try and take it a little bit more to the 50 foot view, if that makes sense. So by no means are you getting all of this up on stage, uh, but if you would like to get more and know more, there's the notes online, as well as you can always go to Right Now Media. You can ask myself or Pastor Rob. We're more than happy to give you books upon books upon books um, and references that you guys can uh, have to get deeper into this if you want to yourself. With that, today we're going to be talking about did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he actually leave that tomb? Um, and look, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. If it is removed, all else crumbles. There is nothing left of Christianity if we take out the resurrection of Christ. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Christ. It is the very foundation upon which the Christian faith is built, and without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. It is the distinguishing event that not only confirms what Jesus taught, but who he is, which is the Son of God. If you guys would like to, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be starting here today. We will jump around a little bit, but I'm going to try and not do that to you guys because I know that turning is hard. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Rob likes to say, if you guys don't know where that is, there's a book of uh, table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. Don't be afraid to use it. Um, and once you are there, if you guys would be so kind as to stand with me as we read the Word of God, it is a way that we can show uh, a little bit of respect to God's Word. So we're going to be starting in verse 1, and Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again in the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, one, as by one born out of due time. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you sent your son to die on the cross. As we delve into the very, very, very tip of the iceberg today, I pray that your presence would be here. God, that we would understand why it is important to know these things why we do this Christian thing, why we come to church on a Sunday morning, why we tell people about you. All of those things are found when we talk about you rising from the dead. So Lord, I pray that your presence would be here, that your words would be spoken from this stage, and that it wouldn't be anything that I have created in my heart. 
Lord, we thank you so much for how much you love us and how much you have given us grace and mercy every day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. When we look at the resurrection of Christ, we can't just assume that everyone believes that he actually died in the first place. Uh, there are a lot of theories out there uh, of, of what happened to Jesus, and we're going to be getting into those theories today, a, a couple of them anyway. But guys, a lot of times we come into a conversation with our friends, or even in our own heart, and we think to ourselves, why do I care what this ancient book says? And we've been talking about, is, you know, is the Bible trustworthy? Do we actually have something that is fact and not just hope, right? And not just fake faith. We've been talking about those things through this, through this process. So if you're still questioning some of those, I highly encourage you guys to go back into the archives and watch the previous sermons to kind of get, your, get yourself to this point where we can start talking about, do we believe that a dead man three days after he was dead, was no longer dead. Because that's a, that's a big claim to make. And we, can't, we, we like to say things as Christians and kind of just roll with it because it's been what we've learned since we've been a child, right? Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose again. Next. And we have this attitude where we don't really, like, do we really believe it or are we just saying it because we were taught in Sunday school that that's how it was. So we're going to look today at some of the theories that we have, or that people have uh, come up with, I should say, um, that discuss other options of, of Jesus' death. There's some, some things to be thinking about, and I'm going to look in my notes because I'm going to cheat myself, sorry. Uh, so there, there are some consequences for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, so, so Paul talks about seven consequences that, that follow a denial of Christ's resurrection, and that's in, in chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, um, which we will read later, but, but not right now. Uh, firstly, our preaching of the gospel is in vain, in verse 14. Our faith is also in vain. Uh, we are false witnesses of God, namely for telling uh, others that Christ was raised from the dead when he was not, in verse 15. Uh, verse 17, our faith is worthless. Verse 18, we are still in our sins, which is a big one. Verse 18 as well, those who have died believing in Christ have perished and there's no hope for them. And then in verse 19, we are of men the most to be pitied. <laughs> so, so we are not in a good place if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Also, some other consequences are the Bible is in error because it talks about Jesus rising from the dead. Jesus is a liar because he said he would rise from the dead. The prophecies have failed. The Old Testament prophecies that talk about Jesus rising from the dead are no longer uh, valid. Uh, and then also, it would be doubtful that Jesus is God and that his teachings were actually true. Um, the reason of that is because, guys, we're banking a lot that God is who he says he is. We are banking a lot that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the Son of God. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. You guys remember that statement? For anybody that says that Jesus never claimed to be God, take them to that verse. Because that is Jesus saying, I am. They knew what he was saying. There was a reason why they picked up rocks and were ready to, to have a little rock party right then and there. It's because Jesus was claiming to be God in that moment. And they understood that. 
So do we actually believe that? Well, here's some theories outside of that, okay? We have, we have what's called the swoon theory. We have the hallucination theory. We have the conspiracy theory. And we also have the wrong tomb theory. Now, we're only going to have time today uh, because I'm going to try and keep this to like a three-hour sermon, not a five-hour sermon, um, to get into about two of these, okay? Um, so the swoon theory is one that we're going to be looking at. So according to this theory, the swoon theory, um, according to this theory, Jesus did not actually die on the cross, um, but rather he swooned, or if you guys want to use words that we actually know or use today, he, he fainted. Um, Jesus is said to have later revived in the tomb, woke up, um, gotten up, rolled the stone away, uh, subdued the two guards that were watching the, the tomb, and then walked seven miles on the Emmaus Road uh, for help and healing. There's a lot of problems with this theory, and if you guys know anything about Jesus' death, we're going to get a little in, into it a little bit today on why this is a problematic theory. So first off, in 1986, a secular medical scholarly uh, journal, the Journal of the American Medical Society, came out with a, uh, an article that wrote about the gravity of Jesus' wounds, and they said this, Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the uh, pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumptions that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Okay, so this is a secular medical book saying... If Jesus was on the cross, if all of those things happened, he was dead. And, and the likelihood is that he was dead long before, or at least before, they actually shoved the spear in his side, which, let's be honest, if you're talking about shoving a spear in someone's side, and it goes through their right lung and pierces their heart, you think you're going to live through that? Even to, in today's standards, that would be a pretty extreme injury to recover from. Uh, with modern medical science. And we're not talking about modern medical science when we talk about Jesus Christ on a cross, dirty, filthy, nasty cross with plenty of germs, I'm sure, uh, and not a lot of care to his body. So in John 19, verses 32 and 30, uh, through 37, we actually specifically in verse 33, we see it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. There's a couple of reasons why they wanted to break the legs, and I think I've talked to you guys about this before, but guess what? You're just going to get a refresher because I'm fascinated with this stuff. The reason why the Roman soldiers would go and break the legs of the person who was getting crucified is because when you are being crucified, you have to have the support of your legs to lift yourself up to take a breath. The way that they position you, it makes your, your uh, chest cavity not be able to expand uh, and, and actually take in more breath. You're constantly, like, you're breathing out constantly. So you actually have to lift yourself up using the strength, whatever strength you have left in your legs so that you can take a deep breath and then lift, let yourself back down. You guys following? So the reason why they would break the legs of the person is because at that point you can no longer lift yourself up to breathe, and you would suffocate if you were still alive. Um, so, look, they did not break his legs because they go, this guy's already dead. Now, that's when he shoves the spear in his side and confirms the death. This also 
fulfills the prophecy that no bones in his body would be broken. Uh, but that's another sermon. Um, okay, so also Jesus was embalmed and prepared for burial with a hundred pounds of spices. Um, so you can find that in John 19, verse 39. So if you're embalming someone, does that, I mean, if you, I'm not going to get into the grossness of embalming someone, but if you know anything about it, yuck. Like, it is gross, and it confirms you're dead. Like, there, <laughs> there's no coming back from being embalmed. All right, so uh, thirdly, there is no way someone as wounded as Jesus would, uh, as wounded as Jesus was, would have been able to move the stone, overpower the Roman soldiers, then walk over seven miles on the Emmaus Road. Look, as wounded as he was, he was lucky to be as alive for as long as he was. You guys realize that that didn't even start with the scourging? Like, we're talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he actually uh, sweated blood. That's a, that's a term, and it's called hemotidrosis. And what that is, is you are so stressed out like 100% stressed out, that all of the nerves in your forehead and, and in your skin start to explode. And, they, and you start to bleed, and it's as though you were sweating blood. There's other cases of people having and going through hemotidrosis. You know what happens in every other case of hemotidrosis? Instant death. If you are that stressed that your blood vessels in your nervous system start to explode, you die. Like, everyone other than Jesus Christ that went through it. And, and some of us are like, oh, well, that means that he was... No, he didn't play the God card. He just was an exceptional man. He was a perfect man. Okay, so let's just be honest and, and admit that Jesus went through a lot of scourging. He went a lot on the, through a lot on the cross. To think that he was buried and laying down and just resting in the tomb. There's even some people that say so, that go so far as to say it was actually the cool air in the tomb that helped him wake up. Um, and, and that's the idea, right, is they think that they, they have to come up with ways of, of saying this wasn't a miracle. It just was like, oh, it was a freshing burst of air. And he goes, oh, good, it's over. I can get up now. But again, they run into a problem when you think about going into these tombs and, and rolling away a stone from the inside. Uh, it would have taken at least two or three fully grown, fully healthy, manly men to roll away one of these stones. Or, or manly women. I don't want to be judgmental. But, but we're talking beasts of guys, not just like tiny little dudes. It would be impressive to be able to roll that stone away with one or two of you let alone a guy who has gone through what Jesus went through and from the inside, which is sealed pretty difficulty, difficultly. He would have to use, like, his nails to... It just is... And then you, you deal with the Roman soldiers. So these guys are trained. They have been put there by Pilate. It is their job to make sure that no one gets in or out of that tomb. So he overpowered them after being so weak, and they didn't notice him opening the tomb. Like, it's like this rock is starting to move a little bit, and it's like, hey, hey, look at this here. This is cool. Like, I wonder what's about to happen. Let's just wait. Like, that wouldn't be because they know the consequence of anybody coming into or out of that tomb is they die. They're the ones that get killed at that point. So, and then on top of that, even if he did that, then he has a seven-mile walk ahead of him. Uh, in, in the middle of springtime or, you know, in that area, it's probably nice and cool and it's feasible that he could do that, I guess. 
But if you think about the amount of blood that he's lost in the last couple days, he still hasn't eaten yet. (laughs) So he hasn't had an opportunity to replenish that whole, that blood. Um, So it's a pretty far-fetched idea. Also, finally, crucifixion was designed to be a horrible death, and Romans were good at it. Don't fool yourself into thinking that Jesus Christ was the only person crucified. Don't fool yourself into thinking that the two other, the two other thieves, were the, they were the only three people in the history of ever to be crucified. Romans had a knack for crucifixion. They liked it, they practiced it, and they were good at it. So they, they would have thousands, guys, and I'm not exaggerating at all, thousands of crucifixions going on. They knew how to do this, and they knew what a, per, what a dead person looked like. They were able to look at a person that had been on the cross and say, yep, he's, he's good. So they wouldn't have been fooled by a person that was acting or that had just fainted. And again, you run into all of the wounds. So the swoon theory is problematic. I think we can agree with that. Um, I Personally, I want to take the swoon theory and hope that you guys would do the same and say, not the way I want to go. I don't want to believe that Jesus just fainted because of all the evidence against him fainting. Does that make sense? Like, there is too much evidence that says he didn't just faint. So we're going to look at one other one, and you guys can laugh all you want. I'm a conspiracy guy, so we're going to look at the conspiracy theory. Um, I enjoy conspiracies. I can get behind conspiracies. I'm all about conspiracies. And so this one speaks to my soul. If anything is going to convince me, it's this one. And, and I'm not saying that I doubt this because I'm about to tell you all the reasons why this one is bull honky. But, but this is the one that I get fascinated with because, look, let's, let's be honest, like the wrong tomb, whatever, that's just silliness. And the hallucination, I guess it could be, but anyway, we'll talk about the conspiracy theory. So it says, according to this theory, um, either Jewish authorities, the Roman soldiers, or the uh, disciples conspired to steal the body of Jesus. So I'm going to kill the Roman soldiers and the, the Jewish leaders first because they're pretty easy, okay? The Roman soldiers had no reason to steal the body of Jesus. In fact, politically speaking, during this time, Jesus was kind of a soft-button issue or a hot-button issue. Like, they wanted to deal with this. One of the reasons why they crucified him, why they agreed to crucify him, is because they didn't want to fight on their hands with the Pharisees. One of the reasons why they did all of this is because the Pharisees were ready to say, hey, we're going to revolt if you don't kill this guy. So it makes no sense for the Roman soldiers to steal his body. Now you might say, well, what about Roman soldiers that believed in Jesus? Because there's plenty of those, right? We even have some accounts of Roman soldiers that believed in Jesus and actually had their kids healed by Jesus and things like that. Okay, the problem with that is this. It's what I said earlier if they were caught, they were dead. There was no reason for them to take a dead body out and risk their own neck. They wouldn't have done that. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to take the Roman soldiers, taking them out, and, and put that away for now. Next up, we're going to talk about the Jewish leaders. Okay, this one is pretty simple. Why would you kill someone because he said he was going to raise from the dead in three days and then hide his body? That doesn't help your case. If anything, you'd kind of want that body to be, like, shown and say, here, see, dead body. Like, 
the Jewish people were the ones who went to Pilate and said, please put guards outside of the tomb for fear of the disciples going and trying to steal his body. So uh, I wonder if I have, I thought I did. Hang on. Boom. Matthew 28, 11 through 15, if you want a scriptural reference for that. So um, you, you have to understand that the Jewish Pharisees are not going to shoot themselves in, a, in the foot on this. Okay, so let's go on to some of the other reasons why this, this one doesn't work. So uh, moving the stone that sealed the tomb wouldn't be uh, just difficult. It would also be quite noisy. So if, again, if you're thinking about guys that are trying to be sneaky and, and hiding, like let's say that they actually did take care of the Roman soldiers without either one of them making a noise. I mean, we've all seen ninja movies and the whole like, like break their neck thing. Okay, except for they just passed out or, or were fainted or whatever. Um, but you're going to make a lot of noise getting one of these stones away. Uh, you're going to make a lot of hubbub. There's going to be things going on. Uh, and, and so it, it just isn't likely that that would happen. Also, again, Mark 16.3, because we might say, well, the ladies are so emotionally distraught that they're willing to do whatever it takes to get Jesus out. They don't care about anybody else or anything else. They don't care about the noise. Mark 16.3 talks about how they were too weak to actually, they, they were on their way to the tomb to, to dress up the body again, and they were talking, they were discussing about how are we going to move the stone. We don't know how we're going to be doing this. So again, it, it's not very likely. It doesn't help them either to steal his body. And, and the reason why I say this is because, again, all they're going to be doing is getting people upset with them, and they are going to be crucified. <laughs> Remember what happened when Jesus was crucified, his disciples scattered. They were scared. They didn't know what they were going to be doing with their life. They had pretty much gone back to life as normal because they, they were like, well, I guess Messiah's dead or whatever. Maybe he wasn't Messiah because he didn't come and take over the government, even though he said he would come back. But I guess I'll go fish. They were going back to their old life. They were going back to what they knew. So it doesn't makes sense that you would just like uh, you would you would want to proclaim that his body was gone and that's why they did when he rose from the dead they started saying hey jesus is back in boldness and the reason why they had the boldness is because he appeared to them he came to them multiple times and and actually yeah he he saw them he worked with them he talked to them and, and so they were able to proclaim in boldness his resurrection. We do have a little bit of time, so I'm actually going to go into uh, one other one. Uh, the hallucination theory is the one that uh, a lot of people want to say is the most valid. Uh, and, and so according to this one, um, those who reported seeing Jesus after his death were actually not seeing correctly, but they were rather hallucinating and probably seeing what they wanted to see in their psyche. So the idea is they loved Jesus so much and that they were so emotionally distraught that they, they couldn't handle it. And so they were seeing ghosts is kind of the idea. Um, and so... Here's the problem, some of the problems with this theory. Um, first off, the disciples seem to have moved on from the death of Christ and gone back to their normal lives. 
Um, a person who is no, uh, hallucinating is normally emotionally torn up and distraught about the passing of a loved one. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't emotionally torn up. What I am saying, though, is that they were functioning. Like, it was, it was brokenheartedness. It was, yes, we are sad. We don't know really what's next. But they were still functioning human beings. A person that's hallucinating in this kind of sense is normally very unconsolable. Um, you think about like the words calm down a whole lot with this kind of a person. They were not like that. They were just sad. They were depressed because their, their friend and their leader had been killed. Um, hallucinations don't happen in large groups, and yet Jesus appeared to multiple people at once. In fact, at one time he appeared to over 500 of his followers at the same time. So you're not going to have all of us in this room right now I don't know how many of this there are, probably not 500 quite, but you're not going to have all of us see the exact same hallucination at the exact same time and then report about it. Does that make sense? I mean, it'd be cool if you could do that, but you can't. Um, the disciples, <laughs> how do I want to put this gently? They were ignorant, it's gentle. They were dumb, not so gentle. They were foolish. They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead either. When he talked about, I will, like, this temple will be torn down and three days later it will be raised up and built again, like, they didn't know what he was talking about. They were ignorant of the resurrection as well, so they weren't looking for a resurrection. They were, they were thinking he was dead and gone. Game over. It was fun while it lasted. That was three years of my life. Great. They were not expecting Jesus to come back, and so when he did, again, it gave them boldness to go forth and actually preach Christ. So, we're going to go into kind of the so what of all of this. Because again, this is great information and things are important for us to know. But guys, there's, there's a reaction to this kind of stuff. There's a responsibility for us to make choices in our lives based on these theories, based on what we've been talking about. And so we're going to talk about Christ and, and being our risen hope. So there is eyewitness testimony there's a lot of eyewitness testimony uh, in the Bible that Jesus appeared to. Um, you have Mary Magdalene in John 21. You have Mary, the mother of James, Matthew 28, 2. Um, several other women from Galilee, Luke 23, 55. Peter, Luke 24, 34. Um, the ten apostles in Jerusalem, John 20, 24. Um, the eleven when Thomas was present a week later, poor Thomas. Uh, John 20, 26 through 29, you have the disciples on the Mount of Olives in Acts 1, 4. You see all of the times that Jesus appeared to these people. And if, here's the thing, if one chooses to reject the eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection, then that person must also be willing to reject most of ancient events. Because there are a lot of witnesses to Christ's resurrection. So if you're willing to say, nope, those witnesses were all just loony, then you have to say that all of the witnesses to any other ancient event were loony as well. And the reason being is because that's all we're going on, guys. All we have is eyewitness testimony and what's written down. 
We in the Bible have just as much evidence for our re Christ's resurrection than anybody else does that, that Alexander the Great existed. Because all that he has is eyewitness testimony and books written about him. So Jesus has the exact same thing. So we have to hold it to the same standard no matter what. Uh, so not only were there overwhelming number of eyewitnesses to the events that contained the Gospels, the nature of their testimony places it beyond reasonable doubt. So you have the witnesses in most cases were independent of each other. At least 12 different appearances occur, uh, occurring over 40 days in Acts 1-3. Uh, there is an initial dis disinclination to believe what they saw, uh, which would eliminate the possibility of hallucination. So you have doubting Thomas, who's like, this isn't Jesus. A person that's hallucinating Jesus wouldn't doubt that that is Jesus. Does that make sense? You have this idea of like, eh, are we sure? that? And also you have a hallucination where the guys were walking down the road didn't even know who they were talking to when they were talking to Jesus. So why would you be hallucinating Jesus and not know that it was Jesus? Make sense? In your head, you're going to know that it's Jesus Christ. Okay, moving on. All right. Um, so... It, the evidence of Christ's physical or material body is important. Um, so he was physically recognized. You have Matthew 28, 17, Mark 16, 7, Luke 24, 24, John 20, 14, and 21, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Um, you have his, him being offered, offering his body to be touched. Again, we have Doubting Thomas. And I hate that we call him Doubting Thomas because he's being defined by one moment in his life, and we won't get into that, but I don't want to be defined as one moment in my life. Uh, but anyway, we have Doubting Thomas and touching Jesus' uh, body, his actually body. He ate physical food, and we have that in Luke 24, through, uh, 24 30, and 41 through 43. Um, his body was made of flesh and bones in Luke 24, 39. Um, it will be recognized at the second coming. And that's a big one, guys, because when Jesus comes again, we will recognize him. And I don't know how, but I'm guessing it will have to do with something that the clouds will be rolling back as a scroll and all of a sudden our God will appear. I feel like I'll recognize that. I hope. Like, I hope I'll be clued off to what's happening. Um, I'm, again, I don't want to put myself in the not ignorant pile of things, but I don't want to be ignorant to that moment. <laughs> I really hope I'm not. Now you all are going to give me a hard time when I'm walking around like, what's going on, everybody? Um, <laughs> so, okay, uh, his burial clothes were disturbed. I'm not going to get into the Shroud of Turin, but if you want some fascinating stuff about Jesus, look into the Shroud of Turin. Do I believe that it was Jesus's burial cloth? Yeah. Do I believe we should worship it? Absolutely not. Do I think that it's really, really neat? Absolutely. Like, even if it's not Jesus, it is really, really neat to think about that's what a body would look like after crucifixion. Anyway, um, so you have some of those kinds of things uh, in John 20, verses 6 through 7. Um, so again, nope, don't want to go into the last little bit. You guys can read the notes if you want to. So What? What do we do with all of this? I want to read 1 Corinthians 15 again, uh, verses 12 through 19. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some, of you, um, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. And if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life, we, uh, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to all men the most pitiable. Guys, if Christ didn't die on the cross, then this morning, every Sunday in you guys' existence, every Sunday hereafter, is a waste of your time to walk through those doors. Or those doors for most of us. Guys, it is so important that Christ rose from the dead. And I love, actually, uh, Miss Sharissa said it. Holla. Uh, she said it today greatly because it didn't just end with Jesus dying. There wasn't a period at the end of that. It said Jesus died and then he rose again three days later, guys. That is our hope. That is what makes it possible for us to have our sins not just forgiven, but washed away. And guys, if, if I die on a cross for you guys, I'm not going to, but if I did it would be, uh, oh, that was nice, but I'm not a perfect sacrifice. I'm not a perfect lamb. I'm not a perfect human being. Jesus was all of those things. Jesus is capable of not just forgiving your sins, but washing your sins. Everything we do in this building, everything that we do on a Sunday morning, everything that we do on a weekly basis, if you say the words you are Christian, guess what? You have a responsibility to be living that truth. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that your sins are not just forgiven, but they are washed away. And if you don't do those things, guess what? I'm not going to tell you that you're not a Christian and you're going to hell. I, I mean, I won't tell you from here because that would be terrible. I'll tell you in coffee later. <laughs> but guys, if, if you don't want to say those things, if you don't want to follow Jesus, then you're missing what Jesus came to do, and that is to give us life and life abundant. We have freedom in Jesus Christ, and it's because of his sacrifice that we have that freedom. Without his sacrifice, guys, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without his sacrifice, we are singing love songs to a ceiling. Without his sacrifice, we have no access to God. You guys know when he died, the, the, the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, um, that created access to the Holy of Holies for us. We can pray every day whenever we want to pray because Jesus Christ died on the cross. We can be forgiven of our sins every day when we sin because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. We can have this access to God the Father because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and that is it. Without that, guys, we are dead in our sins. The best hope that we have is sacrificing a bull on an altar in Jerusalem or at a temple. That's the best hope we have without Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to follow him. If we have been forgiven, if we truly believe that we have been forgiven, then guys, we have an obligation to believe what we say and actually act on it. We cannot sit silently while people go to hell. We cannot just sit here and just 
expect to be blessed and expect the manna from heaven and expect God to be pleased with all the bad things that we do when people are going to hell. And this is eternity, guys. This isn't next month and next year they get out because they have good behavior. It's eternity. And here's the thing is you might be sitting here going, oh, crap. Sorry, I shouldn't say crap from the pulpit. Oh, shoot. Um, That's me. Right now, in this moment, it doesn't have to be you. Right here and right now, you can change your narrative. You can change your eternity. You can change your life forever. And guys, some of you guys might be like, well, I'm a Christian, but this is not what I thought it was. This isn't the life that I thought I was supposed to be living. Guess what? That's okay, because God's grace extends so far that he's not saying like, oh, you're such an idiot. Like, if you don't get right, I'm done with you. You're going to hell. Like, God doesn't do that. He doesn't, like, write your name in the book of life and then be like, mm, too many sins. I'm going to erase that. His grace covers you. His mercy takes care of you. And so in this moment right now, get right with Jesus. Because there is an expectation on us as followers of him to be living our life dedicated to him. Well, you don't understand how much I work. You've taken out Jesus. But you don't understand my situation. I don't ever get to have this. You've taken out Jesus. Where does Jesus come into your finances? Where does Jesus come into your home life, your family life, your kids, your, your mom, your dad, your cousin, your uncle, whatever? Where does Jesus come into those things? Where does Jesus come into your work? Because he wants those things. Guys, it's not like Monday morning is tomorrow. You guys are, most of you are going to go home, go to lunch, sit on your rear ends for the rest of the day, your derrieres, your duff, as it were, and go to sleep tonight. And guess what? Monday morning you will wake up and you will start the whole cycle all over again of, okay, now I've got to go to work. Now I've got to take care of the kids. Now I've got to make food for my family. Now I've got to do all these things. And where is Jesus in all of that? Where is Jesus? And so, did Jesus rise from the dead? The short, simple answer, and I, could, I guess I could have just started with this, and you guys could have gone home a half hour ago. Yes, he did. We have plenty of evidence to say that Jesus rose from the dead. And not only biblical evidence, guys. I've given you a lot of biblical evidence today. There is secular evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And so, we can believe it. We can live it. We can actually let the rubber meet the road and go forward in life knowing in our heart of hearts that we are saved. And so in this moment, I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up as well as the worship team. You guys can come up. um, And I want to pray and I want to invite you guys, if you need to get right with Jesus, if you need to change your priorities, if you need to change the way that you are expecting God to work in your life so that you can start to have him be blessed by your life, um, I'm going to encourage you guys. We have the prayer team up here, but even if you're uncomfortable with that, because let's just be honest, all of us are a little bit stuffy when it comes to standing in front of the congregation and admitting our faults, except for me. Um, I am a faulted person. But guys, if you need to get right with Jesus, whether it's in that chair right now or with any of these three people that we have up front here, please don't walk out those doors, those doors, that door, or any of the doors without changing 
without accepting that Jesus Christ has come into this world so that you don't have to follow rules. You don't have to be burdened with anything. He says, my, my yoke is light. My burden is light, and my yoke is easy. Guys, he doesn't want a bunch of rule-following people. He wants people that are dedicated to him, that love him, regardless of what they're going through, regardless of the struggle, regardless of what we think we know about him and what he expects of us. It's not about tithing. It's not about coming on a Sunday morning. It's not about making sure that you look presentable in the community. Good Christian boy, good Christian girl. Who cares about all that noise? Jesus wants you because he loves you. That's it. God didn't think it was right to have an eternity separated from you. He wanted to provide a way out. He wanted to provide a way that you can have eternity with him and be blessed just because he loves you just because he wants you. So please, please do not leave here unless you know that you know that you know that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried for three days, and he rose again so that you can have him in your life. You can experience his presence. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love. There's so much to thank you for. We just don't even have the time just to do that. Lord, I pray for that person that's sitting in their chair right now and struggling, that is brokenhearted and not knowing where to go, that's here because their friend invited them or their family invited them, or they're just here because they saw that the doors were open. Lord, I pray that you would grab their heart. Lord, that you would not let them go from this place without being radically changed for eternity. Lord, I pray for the people that are sitting in this room, and there are probably many of these people who are thinking to themselves, I am a Christian, but what does that really mean in my daily walk? What does that really, how does that change me? God, I pray for that person to feel your presence right now. Lord, that you would pour your spirit into them and welcome them back, Lord. The, only, the way that only you can do, gently, with so much love. God, I pray that they would be encouraged that it's not too late. They haven't wasted their time here on earth. Lord, you can redeem the time. Lord, I pray that we would be changed. I pray that we would follow after you. I pray that everything that we think matters, all of the things that we struggle with every day, I pray that we would throw them at your feet. Lord, that we would kneel at the cross and offer up our life, our heart, our soul. Lord, everything to you. You have it. Please, Lord, bless us. Without your presence, we're wasting our time. Without your presence, we are of all men to be the most pitied. So Lord, I pray that we would not be pitied. I pray that we would go with boldness, that we would shout to the rooftops that you are Christ, that you are God, and that you love us so much 
that you were willing to die on the cross for us. Lord, we were at enemy, we were at war with you, we were enemies with you, and you've welcomed us anyway. You've forgiven us anyway. Lord, in this moment, I pray that we would not let that go. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the love that you've given us. I pray that your blessings would just pour out. And Lord, that we would experience the love and the grace and the mercy of our God who loves us. In your holy, wonderful name we pray. Amen.